Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. I was also a small fascist as a little kid. If I saw someone jaywalking, uh, yeah. I would tell my mom, and I'd be like, we need to tell somebody. Dang! I was a snitch, man. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dara Lind, Jane Kosen, and uh, we are going to talk about housing and where people live. I tweet about this all the time. Matt often gets into conversations about housing. Is there enough of it? Is there, you know, how do we make there be more of it? So I, as someone who is moderately interested in this, but does not particularly understand the nuances of this as an actual policy debate beyond the street level, any change to a neighborhood is going to price people out versus it's very important that we allow there to be more development so more people can have houses thing. There are actual policy questions here that are interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and well, so I'm so, hoping to kind of get to those. So, so I, I think it's helpful because a lot of people engage with national politics in a politics way. Right. And then they yeah. engage with community stuff in a community-type way. Right. And we think of those as being two separate things. Right. You know, I was saying yesterday that it's interesting that, like, the term affordable housing is one of those things on a national level. People are like, yes, that sounds great. And then, you know, if you go to, like, a D.C. city council meeting or you get to, like, the neighborhood meetings or something like that, and there you talk about affordable housing, people are way more like, no. But in fairness, they are, like— there's a political issue here, which is yeah. that D.C., which is where all of us live and vote, you know, not yeah. for national office, no. but for local people, is like most major cities, a Democratic uniparty c- city, right. Right. which means that political cleavages are like not partisan ones. And also at a policy level, with the exception of some of the stuff that Ben Carson is doing over at HUD, like the things that the federal government can do are really not the things that are going to do the most right. to change. Right. But so, but so, really but so I, I, I want to step it back, though, just to say that, like, the issue is that housing really is local. And in the United States, right. it's very local, yep. which which is, I would say, part of the problem. But but it's inherently local because the house is in a particular place, right? But there are national economic trends, right? And they come up from the agglomeration of local decisions, right? So 
Things will happen all the time. Like here I'm going to go super micro. But like there is a nonprofit in Adams Morgan and they own a building. And the building that they have is underbuilt relative to the existing local zoning. Like literally it's not as big as it could be? Right, exactly. Cool. So so you are allowed to build a much larger building there mm-hmm. uh, than currently exists. So what they have done is they've reached a deal with a property developer to knock down their structure, replace it with a much bigger one, have most of the bigger structure be apartments and use the money that they can get from this to build themselves a bigger office and a nicer conference center. And the neighborhood community is now pushing to get the zoning changed so that they won't be allowed to build such a big building. And on the micro level, the dialogue about this is, you know, if the building was a little bit smaller, that would preserve a little bit more open space. The view would be a little bit nicer. You know, things that that people want there. And they're not saying in their defense, they're not saying you can't build any new apartments here or, or you can't do anything. They just want fewer than the 110, right? So maybe the outcome of this will be 85 apartments or 90, right? And you think like, well, what's the difference between 110 Or 90, right? And it's not that big a deal. But if every project in every town, in every metro area all across America ends up being 10% fewer units than the market would demand, you actually create a huge national shortfall of housing, right? And that, it seems to me, is like what we have, that if you look at sort of big macro trends over the past year, two years, unemployment has stopped being this like national economic obsession, right? It's it's fallen to a, to a reasonably low level. Uh, we're in a healthier place. But if you look at it, real wages have fallen uh, over the past year. And the reason that they've fallen is that wages have gone up a little bit, not a lot, but you know, more than zero. But prices have risen faster than that. And the price that has risen a lot has been rent. And now, so for a lot of people, I'm a homeowner, but 60% of Americans are homeowners. Uh, So we don't actually see this price increase. It's like a statistical artifact that the Bureau of Labor Statistics does for us. But this is a real problem for people who rent. Um, It's a problem for low-income people who rent, and it's a problem for younger people who are renting now but maybe aspirationally would be homeowners in the future. As someone who rents, I can tell you it is (laughs) not merely a statistic. It is a real thing that is really happening and is astounding to observe. And so this is a Fairly, you know, serious national problem. And you're starting to see politicians uh, want to address it. And so Kamala Harris has legislation that in a very sort of typical liberal democratic way is like, aha, people are having a lot of problems affording housing. We should create a sliding scale subsidy program where based on your income and based on the cost of housing in your area, we're going to give you some extra money for it, right? And... It's not like a terrible idea, but it does speak to the question of like, why is it that housing is so unaffordable, right? Now, you go to some places, right? If you go to Cleveland, a lot of people who live in Cleveland struggle to afford housing. Uh, And the reason that they are struggling to afford housing is that they are poor. Right. right. If you're a middle class person living in a coastal city and you look at the price of houses in Cleveland, you're like, man, 
<laughs> I, could, I could get a lot of houses. I, there, I right? assume that Jane and I have both had the experience as Midwesterners of looking at what we could afford if we moved back to our yep. hometown. Yep. If you, if I and moved, Cincinnati, for the record, is like gentrifying fairly quickly yes. in a really interesting way. But even then, man. Yeah, I, I've also looked. I, I used to live in St. Louis. I remember looking up apartments in St. Louis that were described as basically like the Taj Mahal. Uh-huh. And they're like, you could have the Taj Mahal of apartments for $500 a month. Right. So, so something grew. Groups will sometimes do is they'll produce these maps and they'll be like, well, how many people are rent burdened here, you know, are are struggling with affordability? And I think that's actually kind of misleading because it lumps together two different issues, which is that like some cities have a large number of poor people in them, right? And so it's like you struggle to afford housing, but you also might struggle to afford breakfast. Right. 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 And that's a real problem. Right. And like, but then there's a housing affordability problem, right? Lots of people who live in Washington, D.C. and have no problem getting their 12 eggs or whatever it is Jane was telling us she eats for breakfast, right? Four dozen eggs like Gaston. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> you know, pe- people who are not, like, obviously everybody wants to have more money, right? But like there are people who are well above the poverty line in coastal cities right. who would really struggle to get, like, to buy a house with some spare bedrooms where they could raise some children. Right. Well, but then I think there's also the kind of overlap of those two Venn diagram groups, which is often what we're talking about when we talk about, you know, gentrification, is that a generation or two ago when living in the urban core of a city was not the place where, like, upwardly mobile people would necessarily choose to live first, a lot of the people who occupied that housing stock were people who, you know, were relatively low income. And now they are, you know, for the last like several decades, they've been forced to choose between staying where they are in an environment where now a lot of people want to live there and, you know, losing the place where they, even though they may be renting, may have put down roots that they may identify as their neighborhood. Like, this is where it gets really, really tricky to talk about, you know, the relationship between housing affordability and gentrification because when you are dealing with people who either are homeowners but are struggling to afford everything else. And so the best thing they can do for their economic situation is to sell their home or who are renters but are long-term renters and who are now, you know, unable to stay in the same place while struggling to afford everything else. Like, there's a really acute problem here that gets to the heart of the question of, is the character of America's cities changing? Right. Right. I mean, and this is an issue that's become very prominent online, Right. <laughs> People who are extremely online tend to live in Brooklyn or Washington, D.C. Um, they tend to be on the younger side. And in fairness, many of them live also in San Francisco. Yes. yes some in San Francisco. <laughs> or really and, Berkeley and Oakland. And, and you get into a very intense debate between uh, a group of people who I'm often associated with, but I actually want to disassociate myself from a, a yes in my backyard, like pro-housing, unity right. viewpoint, yep. and a left anti-development critique. And this has become very prominent in the media because the media – has a lot of 20 and 30-somethings who live in the central cities of the most expensive metro areas. And I think it would be 
easy reading the coverage to come to the conclusion that the primary housing supply debate in America is between people like me who think we should build more houses and people like the East Bay Democratic Socialists of America who say that, no, what we need to do is decommodify the housing supply and ensure the stability of communities through a government takeover of everything in the universe. But I actually think this is kind of an illusion, that something that happens because in America, we do not build enough houses like in all of the places that are expensive. And because of that, you see the development that does happen, happens in this kind of narrow gentrification frontier, right? right. So, so Dara, you live uh, like at, at on Age Street, Yeah, right? I, I live at the fractal edge of the gentrification frontier. It's really yes. fascinating. Right. And, and I live in U Street, which was like was the old gentrification frontier in, in Washington, right? Yes. And this happens in other cities. You have a place that is poor but is adjacent to a neighborhood that is not poor, right? So for U Street, Logan Circle, it was DuPont Circle. Uh, for H Street in, in D.C., it was Capitol Hill. I don't remember the names of different neighborhoods in Brooklyn, but it, it's like the gentrification frontier spills out from, right, yeah. uh, from Prospect Park, basically, right. in, in different directions. Um, right. And, you know, in my day, I, I grew up in New York, right? And it was like the West Village was nice and the gentrification frontier pushed east into, into the East Village and, and the Lower East Side. And that's what Rent is about and, and the, the musical. Um, I, I am entirely here for turning this into a Benny Was Right. <laughs> yes. I mean, the entire argument behind the musical Rent is that they don't want to pay rent, but they should pay rent. And I'm like, this could be the fastest musical ever. In which he's like, do you want to pay rent? And they're like, no. And it was like, all right, you got to go. We, we should also point <laughs> out that the evil developer in Rent is literally proposing a mixed-use facility with affordable housing units for his friends. Yes. Well, <laughs> listen. <laughs> I'm now riled. I'm riled. <laughs> but, 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 Matt, so, you should never get us talking about musical theater unless you uh, want this to happen. No, but I think it's important. So, because Rent is another is a, a early 90s example of right, the exact right. same phenomenon, right, which is that like the kind of people who would write musicals, right, they inhabit the gentrification frontier, just like the kind of people who do internet takes do now. Yes. And so on the frontier, you have this kind of mind bending question where it's like maybe more supply will increase capacity and improve affordability, or maybe the new supply brings in amenities, brings in more fancy white people, and pushes people out. And I, I think that's an interesting debate. But like the bigger question is what's happening everywhere else? Right. Right. So, like in Washington, D.C., no new housing is built west of Rock Creek Park, right? Even yep. though west of Rock Creek Park is less dense than the gentrification frontier areas, and it is more expensive, right? Like, in market terms, like, that's where there is a ton of unmet demand for housing, but it's, like, so out of consideration that we would build in the most expensive places. Just say nothing of the suburbs, right? Like central Arlington, where it's all single-family homes and they all cost $2 million. Like you could replace those with, with row houses, things like that. And that would unlock a vast amount of housing supply, like, like beyond the wildest dreams of anybody looking at like some new condo building someplace and would really sort of change the game but people are very hung up on the sort of marginal changes on the frontier, it seems to me. I think that these are less separate debates than 
you think? I mean, insofar as there is a baseline problem of local governments are not doing anything, then yes, should the perfect be the enemy of the good is, you know, like that might be an academic debate. And to a certain extent, you know, the real question is, should it just be building more or should it be building more and also other things like subsidies, like Mm -hmm. affordable housing mandates? But there is a little more dispute You know, the baseline question of is it driven by amenities and gentrification or is it driven by just like iron laws of supply and demand with the demand being constant does mean that there's a possible world where if the solution is building things without other things, that will actually make the problem worse. It won't just not solve it, but it will exacerbate it. And that's kind of where we get into a piece that was written earlier this week by our former colleague Jeff Stein in the Washington Post, which used data from the real estate and real estate analytics site Zillow to argue that in a lot of cities, most notably Portland, that the addition of housing stock had resulted in lower rents for the top third of homes, but rising rents for the bottom third. And, like, there's been a methodological debate about how he got to that conclusion. But if that is true, that means that it is actually better to have the status quo than it would be to just do housing without anything else. Right. So here, let's take a break, and then then I want to talk a little bit about this piece. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So 
one important sort of like data quibble about Jeff Stein's piece that it's, it's not a problem with the piece, but it's something that, you know, can go missed in this, right? Which is that renters are systematically lower income than homeowners in the United States. So the top third of the rental market is not actually targeting like the top third of the income distribution. And so when you have data that shows, okay, prices in the top third of the rental market have gone down, prices in the middle third have stayed flat, and prices in the bottom third have gone up, that really is like bad news for like the truly disadvantaged. But the group of people who are enjoying like flat or falling rents is like a solidly middle class group, not like the super affluent group, right? It it top codes at $50,000 a year in income. But that wasn't necessarily – like my understanding uh, from the kind of methodological critiques that have been made of Jeff's piece was that he wasn't actually using active rental data. It was using this hypothetical like if your home were rented, here's how it would go, which actually seems to have the opposite problem, right? Well, that it's not reflecting the composition of the rental market. I, I think the, the the imputed rents is OK. I just – I just I want to be clear in like what it is that we are Fair enough. talking about here specifically. But I mean I, I do think that it's an interesting – question. But I think that like the deeper question that gets sort of waved away in some of these discussions is like, should cities be welcoming to newcomers, right? Like there is a a running joke in my Twitter circle where you try to find liberal people who have both the um, everyone is welcome here, you know, sort of like hashtag resistance sign in the yard, but also some anti-development sign. Right. Right. And and I think that there is something to the point that like for a lot of people on the left, a like anti-development ideology plays some of the role of an anti-immigration ideology for some people on the right. San Francisco, which combines like housing affordability, very serious problems, a lot of gentrification, and unlike in East Coast cities, a strong tradition of rent control laws. That what a lot of renters and advocates for low-income people in San Francisco want is like have no new construction and then have very strict rent control laws. And like the classic, you know, sort of right-wing critique of rent control laws is, well, they create no incentive for new housing supply, but they don't care about new housing supply. That what they care about literally is the well-being of the low-income people who live in San Francisco right now. And I think that it is true-ish. I mean, you can quibble around the margins that like if you don't care at all about potential newcomers to your city, that the appropriate policy is just a pure sort of regulatory crackdown on landlords, right? And then a larger question is like, is that fair? Is it good for a city, right? Like it's very contrary to the actual spirit of most of these coastal cities to say that the way they should operate is as like a gated community that allows for no entry from people, uh, either from abroad or from elsewhere in the country. Like the whole tradition of both San Francisco, New York, every other like big city that I'm yeah. familiar with is that like people go there, you know, if, if I can make it here, <laughs> I can make it anywhere. Not like if I can get on a 60-year waiting list for a subsidized apartment, I can right. make it here. It's like not a question that we're going to resolve by like quibbling about truly a data or even like how supply and demand curves intersect. Like it's an actual 
values question. Well, and, and then there's the, I mean, even the question that you post is, is pretty much, it's a utilitarian question. It's just a question of whose utility you're counting, right? There's the even trickier non-utilitarian question of like, is the city constituted of the people who are currently there? Is there an ineffable sense of place that would be disrupted if current residents are forced to disperse? Is it ever legitimate to think about things like preserving neighborhood character, which might seem on the face like super aesthetic and like, oh, we don't want you painting your house the wrong color, but also encompass things like, well, if the reason that young white people want to move to a city is because of the vibrancy that has been produced by the rubbing elbows of African-American communities, immigrant communities, and, like, gay households in a lot of cases, is preserving that a worthwhile good ipso facto. Right. And you also start getting into kind of the livability question. Um, Nat, you and I both live within literal walking distance of our office. Yes. And that is something that to many people, that is something that matters. But to what extent is that of importance to a government entity. Mm -hmm. Should that be something that you are like, we want to put forward policy that would say like sidewalks are important or bike lanes. You know, the bike lane argument is one that gets people extremely riled up in local. It's it's so funny because I think that there really is a difference between, as I mentioned before, there's like the national consideration of when we talk about affordable housing. And then there's the brass tax you get down to when it's like, okay, We're going to put in sidewalks or a bike lane or something about or we're going to designate this particular area historic district, which means that in order to do absolutely anything, you need to like put up a bunch of signs saying you're going to do a thing and then they can have a meeting to tell you, no, you cannot do the thing. Well, but it's also, yeah. Oh, God, I could have a lot to say about (laughs) this. No, but I I want to talk about the the community character thing because I I mean, I really do think this is telling and that people should – interrogate it a little bit more. I mean, I joke all the time that, like, if Jeff Sessions were to, like, stop talking like Jeff Sessions does and say he's trying to preserve neighborhood character and, like, that's why we need to deport everybody, that, you know, maybe liberals would like him more. But I think it's difficult to think through how it is actually supposed to work, right? Because neighborhoods are composed of human beings, right? And human beings go through, like, life cycle type events, right? They have children and in a sense, right, if you have like a Chinatown someplace and you want that Chinatown to endure, then you need it to be the case that the Chinese-American children of the Chinese people who grow up there can come to have houses of their own, right? And so there does have to be some new housing supply if only for the community's own children to have a place to live. Uh, But at the same time, for I think good reasons we would not allow you to build a new development in a Chinatown and say it is a Chinese-only apartment, right, for community character considerations, right? Like even Jeff Sessions would not go so far Mm -hmm. as to say that people should be able to preserve neighborhood character with that kind of like racially discriminatory housing policy. Also, also, you can't stop the third-generation Chinese-Americans from being less wedded to living in the Chinatown than their parents or grandparents might have been, right? Like, if people want to disperse elsewhere, but then other people have different reasons for thinking that that is a good neighborhood, like, you're going to get a flux, right? And I can't think of any place in America which has maintained its um, existence as an ethnic cluster neighborhood 
indefinitely. And like, what would it have taken to keep the Lower East Side where my great-grandparents lived as like a weird Jewish insular neighborhood, right? Right. And to think of like stopping new housing development as somehow producing that outcome seems a little, um, I guess I'll just say unrealistic. Right. But like that's not how human society works. And it sometimes feels like, well, it would be good to sort of preserve these neighborhoods as museums for people to visit, or if you can think of yourself as doing it on behalf of the people who live there. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, okay, so you have a neighborhood and it's like, it's like a cool, it's like gritty, urban neighborhood. And then someone's like, well, maybe we should make the park in this neighborhood nicer. And then you sometimes hear the concern now under like conditions of constraint that like, no, Like, if we make the park nicer, that's just going to lead to more gentrification. Like, people are going to want to live here. And there's something really – there's something really perverse about that. Like, I I have an article about people near the Anacostia Historic District complaining about a new initiative to plant trees in their neighborhood. And it, like, it sounds crazy, but it's, like, sort of not crazy that they see this idea of, like, making the streets nicer as, like, the leading edge in the plan to push them out. Right. I mean, this clearly gets into much bigger problems with urban governance that, like, if you have destroyed community trust to the point where a pretty, you know, low-level anodyne, like, beautification project is seen as a signal that the government and developers are going to work hand-in-hand to push you out, then, like, that indicates that you've already created the perception that the government of D.C. is trying to serve only some of its constituents. Right, and that the trees are not for the people living there. The trees are for the people who will be living there, and those people are not you. Right, and this does get into, like, I think that it's— fair that in practice, if not on the internet, then as a matter of city politics, the options tend to be not NIMBY versus YIMBY, but NIMBY versus YIMBY plus a lot of concessions to developers, right? Right. Like in practice, the two kind of go together. The, The politicians in D.C. who are supportive of greater development also tend to be the ones who want Amazon to come to the district and, like, are willing to offer incentives for that. Like, there's obviously a much larger potential political space, but in practice, it's not insane to think that your options are between this, like, government support of private interests and do nothing, keep everybody as they are. Like, exactly. I, there, there, I don't know there hasn't how been you... that, middle, that middle ground of, like, there is something to be done, but that something— to be done does not necessarily involve Amazon or supporting the building of condos with elevators that go between the living room and the kitchen, of which there are multiple near H Street for reasons I have no explanation. But, I mean, but, kind of where, like, but, but this is where I keep wanting to say that like what we are excluding – I mean, and I agree it's absent from the political spectrum, but it's like – There is no, like, active politician in any big coastal city who I am aware of, except for Scott Wiener in San Francisco, who is actually advocating for allowing more development in the affluent neighborhoods. Yeah, right. Right? But, like, that is the issue. And it's like – I'm trying to say about the trees fundamentally. It's like it's not just a community trust issue because it's accurate – that under the currently prevailing conditions in Washington, D.C. and many other cities, that if you make a low-income neighborhood nicer, 
that is going to lead many of its residents to getting pushed out. And like, like that's a tragedy. You know what I mean? Like that's like yeah. a really yes. fucked up, but like true aspect of the way the urban economy works. And like the only way out of the bind is to unlock the other neighborhoods right. for development. Because if you're saying all the development has to go into the poor neighborhoods and then they need to fight about, you know, how much development is the right, right amount. Right, right. There is no right amount. Like no development is going to lead to people getting pushed out. A moderate amount of development is going to lead to in some ways a slower pushing out, but in other ways like an amenities accelerator. Right. Uh, trying to do community benefits so that like everybody wins actually only accelerates the pushing out. There's like there's no fix, right? Whereas yeah. like if you build buildings – in the rich areas. Yeah, if we were talking about development in, like, Georgetown or Cathedral Heights exactly. or Kent or something like that, which and then are it, all— And then it generates yeah. a bonanza of property tax revenue, and then you can plant trees, like, everywhere. Yeah. I don't care for trees, personally, but— <laughs> <laughs> But, like, this does bring us back a little bit. And I understand that it's not a perfect apples to oranges, but I do think that we kind of— you know, veered away from the the Jeff Stein hypothesis that, like, at the city level, you're going to see a radical decrease in rent for the rich and a moderate increase in rent for the poor. And, like, if that's true at the city level, there is reason to suspect that even just adding housing units in affluent parts of town is going to result in an increased demand that is going to, in practice, pressure out the poor. Like, there's a feasible mm. world in which, if the Jeff Stein thesis is true, even what you're proposing isn't a solution, which means it's really important to figure out whether that thesis is true. And, like, the problem appears to be that there's a comparison in Jeff's piece of an ongoing trend since, like, 2011 of rising rents in, say, Portland for the lower third— coupled with a drastic falling trend since last summer of right. rents for the rich. And, like, those two are kind of not the same thing. And one of the methodological critiques, which we'll put in the show notes, kind of breaks it down more and makes it clear that what's really happening is rents are more volatile for the upper third, period. Yes. When rents are going up, rents are going up super a lot for the rich. When rents are going down, rents are going down super a lot for the rich. So it is fair to say that over the last year in Portland, for example, rents have decreased a lot for the rich and like kind of stayed flat for the poor. They decreased a lot less for the poor than they did for the rich or for people in the middle. Like that also does not make it seem like adding more housing units ipso facto, though maybe it would be different if the, the housing units being added were only in the affluent parts of town. But, like, it does seem like it is insufficient, but it does appear to kind of get rid of the idea that adding housing units is going to always put more pressure on the upward edge of things, that life will keep getting harder for the poor regardless of whether more housing units are offered or not. So, like, that kind of raises the question of what is the both-and policy that isn't going to stop adding more housing units, but that is going to also assist the people who are least likely to be helped by falling rents. So let's take another break, try to talk about some of this. Yes. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? 
Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. One thing that I would say in response to this kind of this whole dialogue is that it is instructive to look. So you guys are both from the Midwest, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're both from Cincinnati as it happens. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Cincinnati. And so I'm from New York, live in D.C. And so those are like two of the main kinds of American cities, right? There's the high cost coastal cities and there's the low demand Midwestern cities. Yes. Uh, but then there's the third group of cities, right, which is the fast growing Sunbelt cities, the Dallas area, Phoenix area, um, Atlanta, Charlotte. And I do think if you look at those places, right, there are downsides to that kind of urban form. But I think it's unquestionable that, like, in very unconstrained sprawl development, you create systematically cheaper housing for everybody who's kind of around, right? And, you know, it's always worth looking at when you're talking about these coastal cities, like, what margin are we really operating on, right? So one thing that happened in the in the 80s was the Reagan administration put quotas on how many cars could be imported from Japan into the United States. And what Toyota did in response to that was they launched the Lexus sub-brand, right? Because if you were only going to be allowed to sell so many cars, it was important that you make them expensive cars. Right. And then when those quotas went away, I mean, they didn't stop making Lexuses, but like they sell a lot more Camrys. Right. Because when you can sell to everybody, you try to serve the entire market. But when you're only allowed to build 10,000 cars, you try to build cars for rich people Mm. because they have a lot of money. So it's a similar thing in real estate. Now, what is 100 percent true is that nobody is going to – no commercial developer, no matter what you do, is just on their own going to go make housing that is targeting truly low-income families. Right. 
But middle-class Americans, the kind of people who Toyota or like, yeah, Toyota is a great example, who they are trying to sell Camrys to, like developers will sell those people houses also. But you have to let them make enough houses, right? If you tell them they can only make a few houses, then they're only going to make Lexuses, right? But an important question is like how, like actually what could you do in coastal areas that would generate that outcome? Because the way Sunbelt cities have adequate housing supply is they just go further, right? They just sprawl further and further and further. And coastal cities are not like that uh, because we have oceans, uh, oftentimes rivers. Uh, in California, there's mountains near some of the cities. Uh, there's there are also like concerns about, you know, if what's making your city desirable is in large part having a, an adequate public transit system that's right. a lot harder in sprawl. Right. And, th- and there's traffic, right? I mean, so like greater New York is a billion times larger than even greater Houston. And, you know, it's at a point where to sprawl in New York further west into Pennsylvania, you know, you're talking about two-hour commutes, right? So it doesn't work, right? So what could you do that would change the incentives for the many jurisdictions? Because no one place, right? It's not like one random town in suburban New Jersey is going to be like, we are going to take it upon ourselves to generate like all of the housing stock that this area needs, right? So it's like, how could you get it going, like, across multiple places? I mean, I I think that is an open question. I I don't know. I also also do think that there is a, like, okay, having acknowledged that no developer is going to build housing for the, you know, what you might call the truly disadvantaged. Right. um, What is the complementary solution that makes sure that those people are also addressed? Right. But, I mean, I think if you had it, right, so if if you could wave a wand, right, and say, Okay, California is now going to generate infinite quantities of market rate middle class housing, right? Then a natural question would be like, well, what about the poor? And a natural solution would be, okay, we're going to have a modest tax on this new housing development, and then we're going to use it to just build more houses and give them to poor people, right? Or just give more money to poor people and then they can rent their houses. Like it's it's in some ways like not that hard of a problem if you have the huge sort of surplus going and if that's genuinely what people want. I mean, I always think that that's a big question, right? Like oftentimes the stated reason for opposition to some new thing will be, oh, this doesn't do anything on affordability, blah, 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 blah. But when it comes time to like create the new homeless shelters, the same people are often not as eager as they really were. In a way, I don't buy it. I I think that it's like if genuinely your only qualm about housing development was that you wanted to make sure there was more affordability for people at the really low end, I think you could achieve that pretty easily. Right. But I think the concern about community character, while I find it misguided in some ways, is not inauthentic, right? Like what I'm proposing create tons and tons of market rate housing and tax it and then create tons and tons of new public housing. Like, I think that would work fine, but, like, places would look really different. Yeah, and I think it gets into, there's an interesting crossover between this issue and the issue of schools and school desegregation. And that, oh yeah, and I think uh, New York Times has done some really terrific reporting on this and that a lot of the same people who are like, yes, let's encourage school desegregation. However, preferably, 
not at the school where my kids go. Mm-hmm. Now, I think, do you, you know, growing up in Cincinnati, there was a whole issue in a neighborhood called Over the Rhine, which has been rapidly gentrifying over the last right. 10 years. In but ways. when we were growing up, if you told your friends you'd gone downtown for anything, it was like, whoa. Yeah, yeah, which— it said a lot in a lot of different ways. Yep. Um, and there was a whole issue because there was a, I believe there still is, there was a large homeless shelter that did a lot of great work in that area. And there was also a whole conflict about putting the um, main arts and dance and music high school, a campus for it, near it. And no debate roiled my household in 2004 and a little bit later than that one did. Because I think that it is one of those issues, again, you know, when we talk about the real getting down to brass tacks of building more public housing or building housing that's accessible to lower income folks, there's a big difference between how people think about it on a national level and how people think about it when it's taking place where their kids go to school or in their neighborhoods or next to their, I don't know, Jamba Juice. Right. And like, it's worth noting that de facto segregation, when it comes to like school desegregation, you know, we have established policy solutions. Like we have busing policies. Like there are ways that you can get around it. When it comes to just dealing with the fact that A lot of people who are engaged in de facto segregation don't want desegregation. That's why they're de facto segregating in the first place. Exactly. Like, that's a lot harder to deal with. And that's why, I mean, the solution that you're talking about, Matt, the kind of tax and subsidize could theoretically perpetuate de facto segregation if the the apartments that are available are very far from the apartments that are, you know, being taxed. But there's kind of the alternative where, like, you require developers to have X number of affordable units. You, like— shift that burden onto the private developers rather, well, in theory, you shift it directly onto the private developers rather than onto the people who are renting the apartments. But, you know, in practice, it's going to result in difference of prices of apartments anyway. But, you know, that's where you kind of hear the horror stories out of mixed income developments in New York where, like, one developer was having a separate entrance for the affordable units. They had to enter through the back of the building instead of the front of the building. Like, That sounds terrible and like the developers engaging in segregation, but Mm -hmm. what that reflects is that the developer, presumably after having looked at some things, said, gee, we're not going to be able to get people to rent the nicer units out of this building if they know they have to share their entrance hallway with poor people. And, like, that is a problem. Yes. Right. But I also think, I mean, just the other question about these inclusionary zoning ordinances when they come in is, like, why are they wanted, right? Like, Because one reason to put an inclusionary mandate on a new development is because you do want low-income people to be able to live in the new developments that happen there. But another reason is that you don't want the new developments to happen at all. Right. 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 So like at a 5 percent subsidized ratio, you are clearly saying we would like some new poor people to move to my neighborhood. Right. 5 percent is a low number. But like because it's a low number, you will still build those new condos at that number. And then there will be some new poor people in town. But you often hear a push to go to like 25 percent. Right. And the question that always raises in my mind is like, are you really saying there when you want to go from five to 25 that the problem is there aren't enough 
new poor people coming in? Or is this a kind of, to use a phrase I hate, virtue signaling, where you're like, you don't want to say, no, I just don't want to allow any new people to move here. So I'm just going to create conditions that nobody can ever possibly meet. And then it's fine because everything is still the same. I would actually say it's not virtue signaling. It's the last generation of internet ad hominem memes. It's it's concern trolling. Damn it. The memes, the memes. No, but, you know, this is very potent around schools, right? I mean, when you talk to parents and people talk about good schools, they very rarely mean schools in which the students have, like, high levels of performance relative to some quantitatively determined, you know, aggregate of where you would expect them to be, right? Like, like education wonks have, like, an idea of school productivity that, like, takes for granted that, like— the children of refugees are going to have problems in school, but that like a good school partially overcomes those problems. Normal parents, when they say good school, what they mean is a lot of white and Asian middle class parents. Right. In which they mean the, high performing students. Well, yeah. they mean students who will not be a burden on the school that takes the adult's attention away from your kids and to those kids, right? right? So that it's like a school that does a good job of serving kids who have a troubled home life is like going to be paying less attention to the kids who don't. At least that's the fear, right? Or it'll be – there'll be behavior problems in class and and blah, 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 blah. And like that's a huge implicit – driver of, like, what people are actually doing on the ground level, including in very liberal cities in which people have a lot of stated, you know, affordability concerns. Yep. And then their actual concerns are not as stated except for, you know, in their private or political lives because a lot of times people are hypocrites. Right. right. But, I mean, even in their private lives. I mean, I I, I had so many – my son's going to start next week at our our local neighborhood uh, public school. It's a majority-minority school. And and I've remembered over the years, you know, when I was too young, talking to other parents on the playground about the school and people, oh, it's not so good. And people are like, well, you know, it's changing a lot. You're like, well, what's what's changing about it? And, (laughs) you know, people get very – well, they're renovating the playground. I mean, which they are. Um, and <laughs> they're, I, I, they're planting trees. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, they're they're planting trees. They're they're doing what they can. You know, I mean, people feel a lot of tension between their stated principles and right. particularly when it comes to their children. Yes, you know, their perceived obligation to do what is best for them. Right, right. I mean, I do think that this is a serious concern, and I honestly think that this is rapidly beyond the scope of things that not only government, but like, I don't even know what social nor- – like, what your plan of attack is for changing right. the social norms here. Like, honestly, I kind of default to people need to be more virtuous and keep their eyes on their own paper and have a slightly higher tolerance for disorder and, like, not see any existence of disorder as, like, an existential threat to their own well-being or the well-being exactly. of their children. But it, it's, it's very interesting, though, because, you know, I'm sure you and I have both had, like, family come visit us in D.C. and the Cincinnati level of disorder that is acceptable and my D.C. level of order that is acceptable are two extremely different things. Yes. Right. And, and you know, there's there's also this gets into much bigger questions oh. of intergenerational, you know, yeah. movement and what you're willing to accept and self-selection and all of that. But 
I do think that it's at least feasible to force the question. And like, I am now officially, you know, I'm, I'm now taking the Matt Iglesias role of going, well, but if we just built more housing, we could we could at least like force the question, right? right. Like, I assume, and this is, this is possibly a dumb question, but Matt, I assume that like, if we're talking about a bunch more development, it stops being unfeasible to ask any given developer to set aside 25 rather than 5% of that for affordable housing, right? That like, that numerator can go up as the denominator of units goes up? Or is it really just kind of an iron law that because you're only an individual developer, you're not controlling the entire market, you're really only going to want limited set-aside affordable housing units? Well, I mean, there's questions of scale, right? That if you're talking about instead of redeveloping like an empty lot in a gentrifying neighborhood, you're talking about redeveloping single-family homes in an affluent neighborhood, you might want to redevelop it as like a four-unit place, right? In which case, there are different kinds of constraints. But I mean, certainly on the neighborhood level, like you could generate mixed income housing developments, like if you wanted to. And to me, I mean, it really begs the question, it's like, do people want to? And like, it seems to me they don't, right? But that it's confusing. Like if you ever look at a mayor election in, you know, our last like four elections in Washington, D.C., like neither of the candidates says, no, actually, I do not want more affordable housing in the city, right? And presumably the reason that candidates who are trying to beat each other both claim to want more affordable housing is that they believe the voters want politicians who claim to want more affordable housing. But if you put on the table something like a really big sweeping change that would definitely generate a lot of additional housing affordability in all different kinds of neighborhoods, like people would hate that. Well, there are also a lot of veto points, right? Like you can, it's very easy to propose a plan that some people really like or that a lot of people really like, but that fails to win over a key constituency, like, you know, and therefore isn't going to get, whether it's the city council vote to move forward, whether it's permitting any of that, right? But, 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 but this is also is the central, not in my backyard thing, right? Like when, when yeah. Mayor Bowser first said she was going to close the terribly dysfunctional homeless shelter and was going to replace it with like eight separate disaggregated smaller shelters scattered around the city, I don't think anybody, like, oppose that idea. It was clearly the right thing to do. Yes. All of the problems came (laughs) when it was like, well, no, it's going to go here. Yes. Yes. And then people are like, well, that yeah. <laughs> yes, they should be scattered. But not <laughs> scattered, not, not scattered near me. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's the problem, right? Because it's it's easy to say there should be more market rate development someplace where you don't live. Mm-hmm. And that that should finance more affordable development someplace that you don't live. Yeah. Right. And that new kids should go to a school that your kids don't go to. Right. The question is, is like can everybody sort of like hold hands and like take the jump <laughs> together, right? Because right now we're doing the reverse. It's like we're all holding hands. And backing away. And saying, no, you do it, you do yeah, it, you right. do it, so nobody does it, right? right? Exactly. And we might actually all be happier if like we all accepted a little change rather yeah. than all refusing all change because we none of us says that we want like total stasis. Right. Like even if, you know, to get back to the kind of question of what does the city represent, even if you do believe that the city's primary obligation is to the people who are currently living there, not to hypothetical newcomers, even though they might, you know, that might result in higher aggregate utility, like that does pose a moral obligation on each member of the polis to like sometimes act in favor of the collective. Like right. you, there is supposed to be obligation between individual residents of a city to be willing to do things that they wouldn't do. And like, you know, this is 
a fundamental, you know, political moral question is under what circumstances can you do that for people who may not look like you? Right, exactly. And I think that it really is just to go back to kind of the school example, which I think is intrinsically linked to this conversation in terms of what we say we want to do and what we do, you know, my parents sent me to private Catholic schools and did not send me to public schools in Cincinnati, holler at Ursuline Academy. But while stating in their politics, my parents are delightful people, while stating in their politics very much that they valued public education, but they just did not want me to be publicly educated. Mm -hmm. And I think that that the idea of what Dara was saying about needing to accept change, there are very much, you know, I can almost hear people thinking like, well, I can accept change, but just, you know, not for me. Right. <laughs> like, you know, other people, like yes. I very much, I mean, even having this conversation, I definitely am thinking, you know, I do not live in Georgetown or Cathedral Heights sure. or Kent. So the idea of like, why don't we build massive apartment buildings over there or massive kind of mixed income homes in Georgetown, I'm like, I'm all for it. That sounds yep. terrific. But even this morning, you know, I live in Shaw, and Shaw has a, in my opinion, a glut of condo buildings and is building more condo buildings. Yeah, and the cranes, and the cranes will never go down, and there will be cranes forever and hammering for the rest of my natural life. And I'm like, I don't think so. I don't like it. Oh, right, I right. Like, I like, when I go down to National Stadium, which I do frequently, there's a certain point at which it's gone from being like this things separated by empty lots to now there are like angles where you can look and it's like, oh, this looks like Arlington. And there's yeah. a reason that I don't live in Arlington. And like right. there is legitimate case to be made for there's something that makes a neighborhood attractive that you are going to change if you do everything to make that neighborhood accessible to lots of people. And like I think to a certain extent, this is just like why you have questions of distributive economics, like who gets to take advantage right. of a neighborhood that isn't going to look great if everybody I say, not there. me. I'm an open borders cuck <laughs> in both dimensions. I say build them, <laughs> let the people come. Why don't you live in Arlington, though? What do you mean? I don't want to live in Arlington. Why don't you want to live in Arlington? Huh? <laughs> I don't know. I like to walk to work. This is a, right. If they move move the office, I'll go live in Arlington. We've got a huge construction site across the street from me. It's great. Jose loves it. If we actually let all zoning land use be done by um, toddlers, oh, uh, they're very oh. enthusiastic about construction. Yes, they yeah, are. Yeah, man, this is this is great. I'm t I'm entirely here. The for bulldozer this. constituency. But they would have, however, extremely stringent safety requirements. <laughs> oh, we would all be wearing hard hats. Yes, yes, we would all the time. <laughs> okay, and with with that, um, I think we should wrap it up. To thank everybody uh, here for listening, uh, bearing with us. Uh, it's a lot of Washington, D.C. specific talk here, yeah. but it applies it broadly. Yep. And some politics is local. And, you know, come in, in the Weeds Facebook group, but invite others to yes. come. We don't need any construction to bring more members into the group there. Exactly. So, you know, thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and the Weeds will return on Tuesday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.